I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, I hope you do, to turn with us to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29 together this morning. Uh, I do want to say how much of a joy it is to have all the little ones in here with us this morning. Uh, Young moms and dads um, treasure these moments. I know that it can feel like a burden or it can feel distracting or it can cause you to feel a little more self-aware about the noises that your precious little one may be making and how that may have an effect on others around them. I assure you do not worry about that. Um, Yesterday, Amber and I got our senior pictures back for our oldest son, Asher, and um, it made me long and desperate to go back in time to those days when he was causing distractions in the middle of the service. So um, don't try to rush through these days. Uh, Savor them, treasure them, and we're going to pray this morning that God allows the truth of his word to embed deep into their hearts uh, with a great gospel seed that in time will produce a great gospel fruit that will lead to them passionately loving him and serving him for all the days of their life. So with all that said, very thankful to have all of them in here with us today. Uh, We're going to continue together in our journey through the gospel of Mark together this morning, and we're going to see a continued theme building upon itself that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. This is the theme of suffering. And not just the theme of Jesus having to endure suffering, yes, we're going to see that, but the continued theme that while we are in this world, because of sin, we are all going to suffer. Some of us are going to suffer very intensely in ourselves, but all of us, whether it is an excessive amount of suffering that we are enduring, all through our eyes and our ears and our senses, we know and we see suffering going on all around us. And as Jesus has been helping those who suffer, he has begun, as we've seen the last few weeks, as Matthew has been walking us through it, he's begun to reveal little by little to the 12 about all that he must suffer. And even going back to the last time that I preached on the 4th of July, when we looked that day at Jesus healing the deaf mute man, a deep anguished sigh that Jesus breathes out before he heals the man because Jesus knows and is understanding all of the suffering around him and what that means for him. He's feeling the suffering of those around him, and he is completely aware that what they are suffering pales in comparison to what he himself is going to suffer. And this day is coming soon as we journey together through Mark's gospel. And to be clear from the start, and we've already talked about it this morning in our liturgy, but I don't want it to go unnoticed. Why is it that Jesus is going to suffer? He's going to suffer because there are sinful people like me and like you who need to be redeemed and need to be saved. And this is what he's been trying to get the 12 to see. His purpose and plan for coming. His purpose and plan for being here. It's not to rule and reign in physical Israel. It's not to set up on a throne and be a human ruler. No, it is to suffer and die for his enemies, who through faith and repentance would become his co-heirs as he rules the entire universe. And the twelve don't get it. They haven't been getting it. Every step along the way, as Jesus tries to remind them, and he's patient with them, they're just not getting it. But let's be honest here. 
Neither do we. Many times, many times, we don't get it either. And we experience this same level of start and stop, start and stop, as we journey in our relationship with Christ. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is that it is amazing how quickly reality catches back up to us. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, our family took a trip down to Orange Beach in Alabama, and we loved to go down there and vacation down there. And it was great, and we had a great time. We were able to see and spend time with my dad and his wife. We were able to see and spend time with my brother and sister-in-law and my nephews, who we, we haven't seen in a few years. We went for a day trip over to New Orleans, which is a city that our family had never been to before, just to do something different and break the monotony of sand and wave, which although we love that, sometimes it can be monotonous. We had a great time, but inevitably, as is almost always the case, by the end of the trip, my body and my mind had already begun to shift to everything that was going to be waiting on me back when we got home, quickly shifting in the middle of vacation mode to business mode. And I was actually convicted of this one night when I was listening to a sermon on the balcony of our condo, just not allowing myself to Sabbath and to experience the rhythm of rest that God calls all of us to do. But even being aware of it and being convicted of it and trying to battle it, the reality of what I was coming back to began to hit me. Now, to be clear, it's not like what I was coming back to was some awful, unmitigated, disastrous tragedy of a life, okay? But it also wasn't the beach and vacation. Coming back to reality means we have to face whatever is there, whether we like it or not. And in our text today, we're going to see something similar. Instead of coming back from vacation at the beach, though, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming back down from the mountain. And instead of a restful time, it was an intensely revealing time. They are probably not coming back down the mountain with sun-kissed shoulders and noses and wind-blown hair, okay? No, what they're going to come back to and find at the bottom of the mountain is complete and utter chaos. And how Jesus responds to the situation at hand tells us so much about his heart for hurting people. We're going to see rebuke from Jesus, and it's actually going to be pretty strong rebuke. We're going to see a challenge from Jesus. But we are also going to see such tender grace here as he encounters a doubting, desperate father who is pleading for the condition of his son. And ultimately what we will see here today is how utter dependence on God is the only hope that we have for our doubt and desperation. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right into our text together this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as we have heard it read to us this morning, as we have sung truths of it together this morning, as we have united and rallied around it in confession and assurance this morning. Thank you that it is our only hope. May we not forget that. May we be tethered to that. May you show it to us from your word this morning. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Straightway in this text, as we've already read and looked at it, we see action. You don't got to get into it right from the jump. There is action. Look at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Well, just to picture this, it's kind of like a movie scene. You've got Jesus and Peter, James, and John walking down the mountain, and they're in conversation with one another. But in the distance, you can see a great commotion happening and going on. 
And the commotion, as we're about to find out, is all centered around a verbal fight between the scribes and the other nine disciples that were left behind as Jesus went up the mountain. And at this point, we don't know why they are fighting. But we know it must be something pretty good because Mark tells us it's not just a crowd, but it is a great crowd that has gathered to watch. And verse 15 is very interesting to me because it tells us that it is the crowd that acknowledges Jesus first. Look at verse 15. And immediately, see that word again that Mark loves to use, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. The nine are so immersed in their argument with the scribes that they don't even notice that Jesus is back. It's the crowd that notices first. And notice also what Mark says. They don't notice him, the crowd, just because they seem to know that he is the leader of this group of nine. No, Mark tells us that they were amazed by him. And not just amazed, but greatly amazed. Now, we don't know why they're amazed. It could be for purely selfish, consumer-driven reasons. Maybe they've heard about him and all the fun little party tricks that he likes to perform. I would imagine they probably had heard about him. But at this point, Jesus has yet to do anything other than walk. He hasn't even talked yet. And they are amazed just by his presence. Surely there is a word there for us today. But as amazing as that is, that isn't even the focus of the text today. Jesus skips right over the pleasantries of introductions and making people feel comfortable and being hospitable. He goes straight to wanting to know and engaging with what the nine had been doing while he was on the mountain. Jesus wants to know about the argument. But before the nine can answer him, a man from the crowd speaks out. And he answers for everyone about what has been going on. And his answer shows us our outline for this text today. What we are about to see play out in the remaining 13 verses here is doubt, desperation, and dependence. We're going to see doubt, we're going to see desperation, but it's going to drive us and lead us or should lead us to dependence. And first we see doubt, and we see this starting in verse 17. Look there with me. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it it throws him down. He foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They weren't able. Now before we get deep into how the doubt shows up here, let's make sure we know what is happening. This man has brought either a demon-possessed or oppressed son to Jesus because he knows that Jesus can do something. Now, this man might not know all that Jesus can do, but he knows there is at least something that Jesus can do to help. But Jesus isn't there when the man shows up. So he asks the nine, and they can't help. And we're about to find out why. And we find out the answer in Jesus' response, but his response isn't to the man or to the crowd. His response is to the nine. And before we decide that we want to let Peter and James and John off the hook here, we need to remember, at least specifically with Peter, his last two encounters of Jesus calling him Satan and then Peter wanting to throw a big global party to celebrate Moses and Elijah and Jesus at the same time. 
Okay? So if Peter, James, and John had been there, they'd be in the same boat. And so what we see here and what we see happen here starts with verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? From Jesus' own words here, the nine were unable to help the man because they lacked the faith to do so. There are two rhetorical questions that Jesus asked to the twelve here in verse 19. These are not said to the crowd, but they are said to those that are his own. Now this should cause all of us, especially those of us that are here today and are in Christ. You have been saved from your sins and you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you from them. This should cause all of us to take notice and stock of our own lives here and ask some questions. Where are the places in our lives where the need to perform has pushed out the need to pray? Where are the areas in our hearts where the need to fully rely on and trust in God's timing and God's provision where we replace those with reliance on self and on giftedness and skill. We'll get to this more fully in a minute. These nine were trying in the flesh to do something good. This is a good thing they're trying to do. A man brings you his son, and his son is terribly seized with all sorts of physical malady. And you're trying to rid the son of this issue. They're trying to do a good thing. But they were trying to do it in the wrong way and by the wrong means. When chaos comes to our doors, and it will always come, how do we greet it? Do we greet it by running into ourselves? Or do we greet it by running headlong to our Father? This has been a consistent theme for the twelve. Yet see the tenderness of Jesus even in rebuke here. They aren't getting it. They're they're simply not getting it. But Jesus is still faithful to remind them. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Beloved, see the compassion of the Savior even in rebuke here in these verses. There is tenderness and there is grace. And this moves us from the doubts of the disciples to the heart of the man. And I say heart and not doubt dealing with the man primarily because of what we see and how this plays out. Jesus has the disciples bring the boy to himself. And when the spirit knew it was in the presence of Jesus, it seized the boy and it threw him to the ground. And then Jesus asks the man, how long has this been happening? And then the man answers. And I just have to say, as a dad to five sons, I could not possibly imagine having to tell a story like this. Couldn't even imagine it. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 here. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But... If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
Now, I'm just going to say it. Like, I'm not going deep into that this morning because I can't. I just, I can't. Think of this man here telling Jesus all that his son, his boy, has been enduring under torment of this demon. And this dad isn't asking anything for himself. No, he's, he's purely asking for his son. Jesus, my son is being tormented. See him there, Jesus. You can see it for yourself. And this time, this time is mild. There are times where this demon, when it seizes him, causes it to throw him in fire and water to burn him up or drown him. To think of this dad watching this happen to his son, and he's knowing that there's nothing that he can do. Those of us that are parents in this room, we know this feeling well, not in this situation, I hope, but even with small ones. The powerlessness of being able to help sometimes when our kids need it the most. There's a time earlier this year, there's a situation. Seeing your kids struggle and suffer and battle and deal with things. And as a dad, you can't do anything. And just going and just weeping and just saying, God, just help. Just help. This man knows that he can't do anything, but he's heard that there is someone who can't. And he's coming to him because he's the only one that can do anything. And this dad knows there's nothing he can do. And this, this man's request of Jesus is so simple and so pure. He literally just shares his heart. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So simple. If you can, have compassion and help. But it's in that qualifier that we see this man's doubt. If you can. Now, I want to say something here. This is not inappropriate of this man at all for the situation. He's probably had numerous people try to help over the years. He just had the nine try to help for crying out loud, and they couldn't do anything. But as we saw with how the crowd responded when they encountered the presence of Jesus... Asking Jesus this request and placing a qualifier on Jesus is completely and totally different. And Jesus' response to the man may seem harsh, but they are words of comfort and grace. And they ultimately lead to this man seeing his son restored. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible. For one who believes. Now briefly, this verse has been so abused and so misused over the years by people with selfish motivation and selfish aims that lead a great many people astray. It has led to much hurt. It has caused people to walk away from the faith. If all things are possible, then why aren't my prayers getting through? If all things are possible, then why don't my hopes and dreams and wishes get answered? Why don't my doubts get answered? And the truth is, I don't know the answer to that, if those are your questions. There are things in this life that we were not made to understand, and there are times in this life where we are simply asked to trust. But it is never blind and mindless trust. 
Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3, remember Peter is most likely Mark's primary source material here, that God in his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what does Jesus mean by saying all things are possible if we just believe, when we know that there are some things that we're going to ask that are not possible? I want to read to you a quote from Derek Thomas from a sermon on this text that I found helpful this week. This is what he says about what this means. He says, it means that it is possible for me to care for a boy who is possessed by an evil spirit. It's possible to take the losses and the crosses that come with it. To speak like Job in a time of bereavement and loss and say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is possible to turn the other cheek and to go the second mile. It means it's possible for me to overcome evil with good and it's possible for me to be poor in spirit and to mourn for my sin and to be pure in heart. That everything that God can ask of me, whatever duty, whatever command, it is possible for me if I believe. I can bear any burden. I can cross any river, endure any pain, suffer any loss, pass through any shame. Everything is possible to him who believes. There's a song from the early 90s at a time when contemporary Christian music was not known for bangers and solid rock jams or even solid theology. However, there were occasionally some songs, some artists that would give an an apt, opportune word. And there was a song from the early 90s that's about struggle and suffering and eternal hope. And the bridge after the second verse always resonates in my ears when I see or am experiencing suffering and struggle. And the verse that leads up to the bridge is pretty typical You've got a mother praying for her sick baby and a husband praying for his dying wife. And then it gets to the bridge. And this is what it says. It says, pain has little mercy and suffering is no respecter of age or race or position. I know that every prayer gets answered, but the hardest one to pray is the slowest to come. Oh Lord, not mine, but your will be done. And how do we know Jesus hears us when we pray those words? Because they're Jesus' own words when faced with the greatest suffering anyone would ever endure. And these are precious words that Jesus speaks to the man. I have you. I'm in control. Trust me no matter the outcome. And the heart of the man comes through in his reply to Jesus. And it is a desperate plea from a desperate man. What the man says is no longer doubt, it's pure desperation. He has moved beyond his doubt. He's moved beyond it. We see where doubt has led him, and it is desperation. But it is the right kind of desperation. For the first time in a long time, the man has hope and belief. He does believe, but he wants to believe even more. There is trust here in these verses. Look there. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. There is great trust here, but there is also raw honesty and vulnerability here. Such a beautiful and simple prayer from this man. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And this is not a prayer and a cry for belief that Jesus could heal his son. This is now a prayer and a cry that this man can trust that Jesus is enough for him no matter what he may go through. This is how life with Jesus works. 
getting us to the end of ourselves, to resting fully in Him, seeing our sin in light of who He is, seeing His sacrifice in our place, Him substituting Himself for sinners like me, like you. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to accessing the presence of God. And further, he goes on, this boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. And that is saving faith. Faith in Jesus, not faith in oneself. Our need for power, our need for control, our need to know and be in charge of and micromanage all the things. Our desire to have our plans and our ambitions come through how we want them to. What Jesus has for us is always better, even when it doesn't seem like it's better. And there will be many times that all we can say and all we can pray is, Lord, I believe, but you've got to help my unbelief. And when we are that desperate, rightly desperate, we are ready to see God work and we are ready to see God move. And this finally leads us to where our doubts and desperation should lead us, and that is full and total dependence on God. This text here at the end is a reminder of some foundational and essential truths. All things are subject to His authority. And all things are dependent on Him for their existence. Paul makes this clear for us in Colossians 1, 15-20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. All things owe their very existence to Him. So of course this demon fears Him. And of course this demon tries to do more harm when it encounters Him. It knows to find authority when it sees it and it is in the presence of it. And it has to obey. It has no choice. Look at verses 25 and 26. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. Look at the end of verse 26 and 27. Here in these verses, we get a glimpse here of something that is still coming. And that is Jesus' triumph and authority over death and the grave. The end of verses 26 and 27 there. 
He is dead, they said. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. This literally means that Jesus raised the boy to life. Everyone in the crowd thinks that this boy is dead. And Jesus takes him and he raises him up. Now there's some debate about if the boy was dead. But that's not the point here. The demon thought that it had left the boy dead. It had been trying for years to kill the boy. And Jesus made sure that everyone that was there knew that he had authority over that as well. Just as he would very soon, very soon after this, when he would conquer sin and death and the grave and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave three days later. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 puts it like this. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews says there? There is nothing outside of his control. Not even suffering, not even death. And that leads nicely to how this encounter ends. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What Jesus leaves the 12 with is a challenge to us as well. Every area of our lives we must submit to and rest in the sovereignty of God. This is not Jesus saying only casting out demons we take to God in prayer. Only doing great spiritual acts and things we take to God in prayer. It's only the mountaintop things that we take to God in prayer. No, he's saying literally every area of our lives is a matter of prayer. Why? Because we're dependent on Him. Why would we not want to run to Him? So how do we today, in light of this text, respond? With our doubts, let's remember past promises God has kept while we wait on present prayers to be answered. Every one of us in this room, most likely, especially those of us that are in Christ, we have something that we're praying for, and we may have been praying for it for years Do not stop. Do not stop. Rest in past promises fulfilled while we wait on present prayers to be answered. And there are many of us that we see stories like this in the gospel as we've encountered these healings, as we've gone through this. And quite honestly, it hurts your heart because you've been praying for God to do things and He hasn't done them. And you see in these verses here that He's doing these things. And instead of finding comfort, it can cause you to find doubt and discouragement. Friend, don't let that do that. Don't let a lie of the enemy tempt you to despair against the grace of God. Rest in past promises, even ones that He did in the healing of this son of this father. And keep praying. Keep praying.
In our desperation, let's cling to the cross as things seem to spin in utter chaos. The more the world gets chaotic, the more things spin out of control, cling tighter to the cross. Don't loosen your grip. Keep seeing your sin and keep seeing Jesus and keep reminding yourself of what he has done to rescue you and let your fingers go into that wood and get as many splinters as you can. Don't worry about taking them out. Just cling and just hold. Just cling and just hold. And in our dependence, let's linger long in prayer and expectation for faith and trust to grow. Let's trust God to be true to His Word. And let's cling to His Word. How does this look? The Psalms are one of the greatest prayer books in the history of the world. And Psalm 130 says this, and it gives us a picture of what it looks like to linger and labor in prayer when it doesn't seem like there is an answer right in front of us. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Let's be grounded to the word and grounded in the cross no matter how long it takes. Let's wait with eager, watchful expectation to see what he does. And let's grow in grace all along the way. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your tenderness. We thank you for convicting words and challenging words. Father, for those of us that are here that are in you, have been saved by your grace. Father, our prayer is not unlike this man. We all have moments of doubt and fear and unbelief. We're just like your disciples. We all have moments where we run inward and want to rely on our own strength instead of trusting and resting in you and what you can do. Father, may we confess that this morning. May we run to you. Father, there are those that are here today and they don't know you. Father, for the first time, may your spirit open their eyes and open their hearts to see the beauty of the gospel. To see that a life leaning on and depending on self will always be futile and empty. But a life in you brings joy forevermore. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.